Hi, and welcome to another edition of Halftime with Chuck and Drew. I'm Chuck, and he's Drew. I've been Drew every week. We've done this. Right. You, you, you've been you're Drew. a model never of consistency, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to tell you this. I was looking, on, and I ran across something just accidentally when I was online, mm-hmm. and it had the list of top 10 podcasts for the month of January. Oh, really? I, I take it ours was not in We there. just missed it. I mean, <laughs> by like, I, I mean, a, a matter of just a, a few listens, I think. Yeah. I think our placement was something like uh, 367,951, but we were right on the cusp <laughs> right. of being 367,950. Yeah. I mean, just a couple of more listens. And we'd have been right there. I mean, right, yeah. right there. <laughs> so essentially, we need to double uh, the number of listens, and we should move up a couple. If we can get it up to four or five, we're going to yeah. be okay. <laughs> right, yeah. So, glad, to, yeah glad to see that we're so close to charting here. <laughs> right. I, I was going to ask you, have you watching anything special lately? Not a whole lot, just a lot of basketball. Uh, something else I've gotten into is like the 80s or 90s sitcom. I've been watching Coach. I started watching that from the beginning. I had seen episodes of it, but not really seen it all the way through from the beginning. And like any sitcom, it kind of grows on you as you get to know the characters. I don't know if I'll finish it or not, but that's sort of kind of what I'm into. I like that in Wings, which I, I had seen before. I love I Wings. Was really good. Wings is hilarious. Uh, it was a spinoff of another show. I don't know if it not, – not a spinoff, but it was heavily influenced by Taxi, which was hysterical. Like Roy Biggins was Danny DeVito. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, there's a lot of crossover there, but I, I love both of those. Without the need for a booster seat. Right, yeah, without the need for a booster seat. <laughs> yeah, I love that show. Coach was actually a favorite of my dad's. I did watch it here and there, but uh, he watched it pretty religiously and really enjoyed it. I need to mention it to him next time I talk to him that it's actually out there and he can rewatch yeah. it again. I think Jerry Van Dyke actually kind of makes that show. Yeah, he was funny in it. Yeah, he kind of does. Um but, uh, yeah, so those are the two that I've kind of been watching now. But, yeah, Wings, I, I'd forgotten how funny some of the early Wings episodes were. Oh, my God. <laughs> we talked in the past about my affinity for British television shows or my growing affinity for British television shows. And I just finished yeah. off a series that my wife and I were watching. It's called Poldark, um, which actually sounds like some sort of Dutch Elm disease or some form of it. Um, but it's a PBS Masterpiece Theater series. Uh, it was a drama romance type thing and it's set in England in the early 1780s, something like 1783 to 1801 is the time frame, and there are five seasons of it and it's based on this guy whose name is Ross Poldark and he was an officer in the English army and actually fought in the American Revolutionary War against the Americans. Now he returns home to his native Cornwall to rebuild his life. And it's based on a series of novels done by a gentleman by the name of Winston Graham. It was kind of interesting, but it it is frustrating. I will say this in, in the sense that everything is a tragedy in this show. There is nothing that ever goes well for anybody for more than a moment. I think we were talking about it could be someone just simply going out to the outhouse and a moment later, the outhouse explodes because there was some sort of gas buildup. <laughs> or yeah. somebody meets the love of their life, and then they spent the entire time for the next several shows questioning 
that love for each other and whether it will last. Well, no, if you keep talking about it, it probably will not. <laughs> right. And I can sort of also figure out if this is true to life, why the English may have lost the American Revolutionary War, because you watch this and it seems with every single character, when you think about what move they should take next and what logical common sense tells you they should take next, they do the exact opposite to screw things up and make things even worse for themselves. Right. So it's the kind of show that if it were set today, someone would get a pet dog and within 10 minutes, it would, the dog would be run over. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or they just find one calamity sort of after disease. another after another. <laughs> right. And if you think about this, we talk about these people being the makeup of the English army in the American Revolutionary War. You had a whole bunch of these people making bad decisions and doing the wrong thing. No wonder they lost and we won. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that and, but I did know, like I, it. I really did. I did like it. It was engaging. The characters were engaging. It was right. well written, it was well put together. Uh, I enjoyed the scenery. Uh, again, it was an English show where you may or may not need to turn the closed captioning on to get the subtitles because of the use of language, especially when you're talking about the late 1700s. might be a little challenging at times, but it was pretty good. Now I'm kind of sorry yeah. that it's over. Right. Masterpiece Theater has had some absolute gems. Like I've always been kind of a fan of PBS. I know that people have different feelings about it. And with the PBS app they don't really they, they have some masterpiece but not all of them but some of them have just been fantastic series like the i claudia w was really good i mean that was set in roman times but th they've had some gems on on that series well, let's get into our sports topic for the day and you get to leave this one off yeah so i figured what could i do for the sports topic y you know i'm i'm sort of in the host chair for the first time during a segment and it's like well why don't we just interview chuck he's right there he's available and chuck you've been on the radio i think for 38 years 39 years doing sports play-by-play -play, color the whole gamut uh but you've you're kind of in a situation now that you've never really been in before with the pandemic when you're in the arena you're basically you might as well be in the parking lot we're so far away and even when you're on the road, you're used to traveling with the teams, being on the bus, being at the hotel, being able to interact with the coaches and players, being able to do your pre and post game stuff sort of on site. And now you're, you're watching it on television. And furthermore, I don't know if any of our listeners know that this or not for the home games. I think you looked down, saw me down there with nothing to do. And you're like, well, Drew, Drew is not doing anything. I'll just pick him up and help me and have him help me with color. Yeah. So we've been doing that this year. And, you know, but what are some of the challenges here? So, like, I, I do know that this past weekend we had a football game and you had discovered Flow Sports for the first time in all its glory. Oh, all yeah, its... don't even bring that up. That was the most nightmarish broadcast of my entire career. It was absolutely soul-crushing. Yeah. In doing a remote broadcast, and this all started, as you mentioned, because of the COVID pandemic and a lot of broadcasters now are actually doing games off of TV screens. I think some people have bigger screens than others. I believe ESPN actually has full wall screens. We have about a 55-inch television set. And when you talk about this past weekend, this football game that we did between Moorhead State and James Madison, uh, we're doing this on the 55-inch television set. And you are at the mercy of whatever the producer wants to show you in terms of right. the camera shot. For instance, um, we didn't play very well. We got beat pretty badly, and there were a lot of kickoffs. 
But during the kickoffs, they were showing the sideline reporter talking. So we didn't really get to see the kickoff return until the returner was actually tackled well up the field. Right. Uh, there was a field goal that was blocked. And the camera work, quite frankly, was not very good because they didn't anticipate a possible block. As soon as the ball was snapped and the kicker headed toward the football, they started the shot down the field toward the goalposts. And the next thing I saw was a ball rolling down the field. And I quickly realized I was going to be in trouble because the wide shots that they gave, you could not read the numbers on the players. And that is absolutely a broadcaster's worst nightmare is not being able to see what you're about to call. And it just made my blood run cold when that happened. Then when they would go into a narrower shot, oftentimes I could not see the yard line markers either on the field or on the placards on the side of the field to know where the ball was or how many yards were gained or lost on a given play. So it was it was by far and away the hardest broadcast I've ever had. And what I wound up doing was you have what's called computer stats. And, you know, it has a basically real-time look at the stats in the ball game. Well, there's also a section of that that gives you the typed play-by-play that runs along with that. I was actually calling the game many times off the computer screen, reading the play-by-play, so-and-so up the middle for five yards. That's how I knew who had the ball was by looking at the computer screen, not by what I was seeing on the television, because quite frankly, I couldn't see it. Yeah, it was kind of a throwback in the 1920s and 30s when they started having baseball on the radio. There wasn't really a press box yet. So what what they did on the first couple of year or two of broadcasting baseball was someone would go out into the ballpark, see the play and then run in and tell the play by play what was happening. So you were getting everything relayed. And with some of these games, and especially the one you did on Saturday, the football game, it sort of felt like that because while the game was on television, you couldn't really see football in general when it's televised is not shot correctly. I've always thought that. I wish they'd show it from the end zone so you could see plays develop and receivers break and patterns. The way they show it from the side angle, you really can't see downfield. When you're doing a game in the stadium, you can see the whole field. When you're watching a game on TV, you're confined to a very small space. That had to have been impossible. And on top of that, this was an atrocious broadcast. It was. And when you talk about broadcasting a football game, you're trying to look at a field that, if you include the end zones, is 120 yards long. Now, you can flip that over to basketball on the other side of this, a basketball court is slightly longer than 30 yards long. So you can get that into a camera shot pretty easily and get a much closer look at what's going on and see the players and see the numbers and see what's happening. Basketball broadcasts in general are a lot easier. And I'm hoping that the remainder of our spring football games are a little bit easier and the production value is a little bit better than what I dealt with in that one. But I think part of the hardest part of doing these remote broadcasts is you walk into a room. You don't walk into a press box or side court for basketball and sit down at the table. When I'm inside a stadium or a gym, I'm interacting with staff members. There's a certain atmosphere going on. You've got music playing. You've got people laughing and talking. And you're right there with the game, so to speak. 
And what I'm doing through my pregame show, whether it's football or basketball, is I'm looking at a black screen in an empty room with nothing going on and trying to generate enthusiasm. And that's kind of difficult because a lot of times for me, I'm feeding off the crowd. I'm feeding off the energy inside a stadium or an arena. And there is no energy inside of an empty room. Right. And when you're talking about, you know, these are not on regular television. It's not on free-to-air TV or cable TV. A lot of this is coming in via stream. And while it's getting better and better as the, as the year goes along, there are times where the, the internet hiccups or the, or the Wi-Fi blanks and you lose the stream for a second. There's been times where it doesn't, it comes in and it's real pixelated and you might have to restart it. Um, and like you said, you're kind of at the mercy. You can only call what you see on TV. And when you're not at the game and you're in a room watching it on a, te- on a television, but it's not a television broadcast as much as it is a video stream, that's got to be difficult. And it's got to be in the back of your mind a lot of the time is, are we going to lose the stream? What yeah. happens if it goes down? And one of the things that I know, it's like, I, I've been in there a couple times helping. Well, I, I want to say I was helping out. I was really just taking up space. Uh, and I would have the game going on my phone in case the stream you were watching went out. So at least you'd have something to look at. <laughs> right. Right. And that was helpful because that did happen. First yeah. time I realized that we we're going to have an issue. I, I didn't know what to expect when we started doing these remote video screen broadcasts. I had no idea what to expect. And actually I've prepared extra just in case I wanted to be even more prepared than I would be if I was actually at the game and that, and I do work hard to prepare, but now I'm working even harder than what I did before. But uh, we had a game at Clemson and uh, you know, it's an ACC school. So you expect a pretty good production and it was overall pretty good, but somewhere about midway through the first half, the resolution of the screen completely got jacked up to the point where it appeared, I want to say this, uh, I want to make a comparison that would be accurate. It was like looking through the opposite side of a dirty aquarium. Yeah. I could make out that here's our guys and here's their guys, but I knew our guys and I kind of knew what they looked like, but because I don't broadcast Clemson on a regular basis, I didn't really know their guys very well. And I'm sitting there in the back of my mind, just praying that this thing clears up quickly. And within a few seconds it did, but it did that three times in the first half. Right. And you just have to keep going there. There's just Mm -hmm. no stopping. Live radio is working without a net. Then the weirdest thing that happened was we had a game at Eastern Illinois and one of our players is at the free throw line and he shoots the ball He's got two free throws. He shoots the first one, and the ball stops in midair. It's just hovering. And I'm frantically trying to figure out what to do, and my partner, Dean Harden, who's sitting to my right looking at the computer stats, looks at me and and gives me the indicator that the first shot was good. So I call it without seeing it, and it's still frozen. I'm hoping it's going to be unfrozen, but now the second free throw is shot, and I call that one too as well. That one was also good. But now I have a broadcast with no picture to look at. So we had to call for a break, and we had to go ahead and reset the stream again. We had to reboot the stream to get the game back so we could see it. But you really never know. And in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, what's going to happen on this broadcast? What can happen? It's not like anyone's not trying to give you a good production. But at the same time, 
things occur and you just don't know what's going to occur from one broadcast to the next. Now we've had some broadcasts where the production was clean from start to finish and you get done with those and it's almost a sense of relief. I take it there's not much you're going to miss about uh, doing games remotely. <laughs> no, and I'm not going to miss sitting at the top of our arena for home games either. It's a long way up there and you can't really see everything as well as you'd like. It's so far up there, I, you know, I have to check in with an air traffic controller before I start my climb up to the broadcast booth. Uh, and we always say, like, from the top of Mount Johnson, like, you know, Johnson Arena, we're, we are way up there. And even that, while it's a, lot, it's a million times better than watching a broken stream of a, of a broadcast remotely and trying, to, and trying to, you know, call the game that way, you still don't always know who the fouls are on. You're so far away that some of the teams, they come in with these alternate uniforms. You have a hard time making out the numbers. It is a little bit harder up there. And sometimes, like, we do have video replay, which is behind the live action. But even that, there's times that you start looking at that just because it's easier to look at that than what's on the court a million miles away. Right. And we had one opponent who came to our gym that was wearing black uniforms with dark red numbers with a silver trim around the number, about a quarter of an inch trim. And from way up there, they're almost impossible to read. So what I started doing is looking for other ways to identify the players. For instance, this one's got red shoes on. This one's got white shoes on. This one has wristbands on. This guy has a headband on. Yeah. Ways to identify them besides their numbers. With the remote broadcast, sometimes the challenge is figuring out who a foul is on. You have to wait for the computer stats to give that to you. But the challenge there sometimes is that the computer stats are 10 seconds ahead of where you are because the picture is on a delayed basis. Yeah. So you have to make sure you look at the computer stats the right way to get a read on what's actually going on. But substitutions, since you don't have any sound, you don't hear the horn, we don't know who's coming in the ball game generally until they're on the floor. And so we've had to kind of change the way we mention the substitutions and just talk about who's on the floor at that time. Yeah. And see, I don't know the difference. Like, see, this is the first time I'd ever done it, so I don't have anything to compare it to. But, uh, you know, it is challenging sometimes, and I don't know how you do it. The color guy's got kind of an easy job. You just sit there and make comments every now and then. But you're having to paint a picture of what's happening. Under a normal circumstance, that's a specific skill. That's hard to do. Under a circumstance that isn't normal, when you're watching a stream that's on a delay, that's choppy, that's coming in and out, freezing, or when you're just so far away from the floor that you have a hard time determining what's going on, it's even harder to do. So you're certainly earning your money this year, Chuck. I almost feel like with this show, like I'm a magician revealing my tricks, you know, how I do my tricks. Uh, For one thing, people don't know probably that Sitting in a dead studio, obviously, there's no crowd noise. They probably know that. But at the same time, how do you manufacture crowd noise? Well, we use canned crowd noise behind us that's being played at the studio. So it sounds like a real game. And quite frankly, I need that crowd noise for myself because it makes me feel like I'm in the game. When the crowd noise is not there, I'm wondering where it is. And it makes me feel a little bit distant to the game. The crowd Mm -hmm. noise makes me feel like I'm a little bit closer anyway. Yeah. One of the things you're – I've always been amazed by this is how quickly you can memorize a roster. Basketball, you've got 12 players to worry about and maybe only six or seven that you really need to, to focus on. But in football, 
you've got 22 starters, you have the depth chart, and, and you got to know that 45 is this guy and 52 is this guy. And I, I mean, I, I've always been amazed at how you were able to memorize that quickly and know so much about them. Our own players, it's not so hard. Even I can memorize them. But the opponents. Well, you have to go over it and go over it and go over it and go over it. And you have to go through. I have different memorization techniques that I use. And I'll go back and I can visualize the numbers in my head and try to associate the names with those numbers. And I do that with the depth chart, especially with running backs or whatever, what you have more than one running back who's going to play. So I, I need to know probably the top two to three because they'll be in the ball game in this past game. I think there were four or five that we saw from the opponent and I was prepared for four of them. Uh, you just have to kind of read the situation in advance and know perhaps who might be in the ball game besides the starters. It's, it's just something that, I've always been really good with remembering numbers and names. I can remember all the phone numbers that I had as a kid. I can remember my grandparents' <laughs> phone number that they haven't used since 1968. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty good in remembering numbers, and it's served me well in this career. Okay. Uh, and I guess the last question it has here, we have another topic that I'm excited to get to. Um, you will not complain if we stay with ESPN plus and don't go with floor sports, will you? Yeah, not one bit, not one bit. <laughs> ESPN plus is much better. And I will say that uh, I know our production people at our gym. And if oh, I had great. to do a remote broadcast, I wish our production people were doing yeah. the work because I think they're pretty good. I think they're, oh, they're really, great. Really a nice yeah. job. And I've seen their work and I'd be comfortable calling games from what they're able to put up on a screen. Right. All right. Well, let's get into the next topic. I enjoyed my time as a kid. I think you did too, right? Oh yeah, I had a, I had a pretty good childhood. My parents treated me well. They they shut the factory down after me, so I didn't have brothers and sisters. But yeah, I, I enjoyed my time as a kid. It well, may have been the best parent, time. As a parent now, and as a grandparent, as a former child myself, I've always liked kids anyway. But uh, we're going to talk about favorite toys, and we may date ourselves with the era of these right. toys. And uh, I've got five of them that I really remember really well. Yeah. And uh, we'll go through, I'll give one and then you can give one. And one of my favorites, and these are not in any order, basically. These are just the five that I came up with in, in no particular order. But one of my favorites as a kid was GI Joe. We talked about GI Joe a little bit on the last show. I compared yeah. you to GI Joe with the Kung Fu grip, which with the Kung you still Fu are really in my book. Yeah. The greatest okay. GI Joe's ever. Yeah. But uh, GI Joe was 12 inches tall when he came out in 1964 as produced by the Hasbro company, one of the great toy makers in the United States. And uh, this was at a time when uh, there were a lot of World War II type combat shows and movies that had come out. And uh, my favorite show back then was called Combat, which starred Vic Morrow and Rick Jason. And it was the story of this World War II U.S. Army platoon. So when G.I. Joe came out, boy, that was a big deal for me. You know, he was bendable. I mean, you could bend his arms, his legs, his hands, and his knees. I mean, you could have him crawling through the grass, and you could set him up, you know, in a little bush like he's a sniper or whatever like that. And I had a blast with him. And then what's interesting is that in 1965, because G.I. Joe was wildly popular, the rival Mark's Toy Company came up 
with its own soldier toy called Stony Smith, who was about the same size as G.I. Joe. <laughs> there is a key difference between, there are key differences, I guess, between the two of them. With G.I. Joe, he had basic equipment that came with him, and then you had to buy other accessories to play with. Um, maybe you wanted to have a flamethrower or something like that or whatever. Uh, a pup tent, you had to buy those. Maybe a 30 caliber machine gun, that had to be bought separately. Now, Stoney Smith came in a box, and he had all that stuff with him. He came packaged with all these different weapons and things like that. So he was kind of cool from that standpoint. But the one thing he lacked was bendable knees, <laughs> which means you couldn't get him into a Jeep with G.I. Joe. He had to stand up in the back, so he was always like the first casualty of any backyard <laughs> battles we ever had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And his neck didn't move very well. So when he'd go to shoot, when he was laying face down on the grass, he had no idea what he was shooting at because he was facing face down into the dirt. And so he was just firing blindly. So he probably took out about half our men in right. the process. Yeah. So it wasn't as practical of a war toy. It doesn't sound like, well, these were the parameters and I don't know if you had any for yourself. I had a lot of good stuff. Some of the stuff that I have while toy ish, I wouldn't consider video games a toy, or at least I didn't want to. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But for the sake of this, I didn't want to just talk about my favorite video games. Uh, I also had one of the favorite things that I had was a record player. I don't know why I was so entranced from the age of three of music and records and not just the music itself, but the mechanics of a record player fascinated me. I could sit there and just watch it play the record and have the spindle drop it. I, I could do that for five or six hours and I would be easily entertained. Somehow um, I see your mom in the other room making dinner and Drew, yeah. go into your room and watch your record player for a yeah, while. Yeah, you're not that far off. So like, and I guess like, I guess, I, I mean, that was just an easy way to keep me entertained. I was always pretty easily entertained. Um, but one of the things that goes along with what you kind of said was the He-Man boom. Uh, that happened when I was in kindergarten. It probably happened before and after I was in kindergarten, but I just went crazy for that. And they had these action figures that were sort of similar to G.I. Joe. They weren't a foot tall, but they were about four to five inches tall. And they just looked amazing. And you want to talk about accessories. There was always, uh, you, you know, a piece of armor that you could have or a vehicle or a castle or something else. Like there was Castle Skull, There was Snake Mountain where Skeletor lived. And on top of that, He-Man had basically created a, a television show that was on, I believe, it, I don't remember if it was on in the mornings or in the afternoons or both. But it was on when you got home from school. And if you were in after school care or daycare, you watched it. I mean, every, at least every boy that was there would just huddle around and watch He-Man. And this was the perfect opportunity for them to basically push the next action figure on you because you'd see it in the show and you'd want it. And then during the show, they'd run a commercial for that action figure. So they had a magnificent racket going on for what about great, six or seven. What a great marketing tool. That's brilliant. <laughs> I was. And like, so every week, and I, I don't know how many times my parents must've thought, didn't, don't you had enough? Don't you have enough? Can't you play with what you have? But no, you had to have the next biggest thing. And uh, so I, that kind of tops the list is, is, we're not really going in order, but that's one that I certainly remember growing up was 
this Masters of the Universe collection that I have. I, I have no idea what happened to it. Um, those are actually really valuable now. Like if you have them in the box in mint condition, you can get lots and lots of money. You have it in the box though, except some yeah. who well, that's just it. I mean, and understood maybe that this was an investment, not a toy. And there are not right. that many kids out there like that. Oh, and we beat the hell out of these things because, you know, you had your good guys and your bad guys and you would have them fight and you're just banging them together and you're throwing them around. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, mine were all scratched to hell. They probably wouldn't be worth anything even if I still had them. But Well, yeah, my G.I. Joe became a paratrooper. I, I made a little parachute for him and uh, yeah. never would have survived any of those jumps for real because I'd basically throw him up in the air and he'd have this little homemade parachute slapped on the back of him and right. uh, he, he'd fall like an anvil <laughs> Yeah. Like the Acme Anvil and the Roadrunner. <laughs> yeah. And most times I wouldn't catch him. I'd just let him fall, but then I'd detach the parachute, and then we'd crawl off into battle together or something like that. Yeah. Another one of my favorite toys, and I don't know if it was a toy or not, it's, it's, it's still important to me, was my baseball glove. And I remember I got my first baseball glove when I was eight years old. It was actually for my eighth birthday, and I lost it. And I made up my mind I would never do that again in my life. As a matter of huh. fact, I still have every single baseball glove. Oh, wow. From that point on in my collection, I have every baseball glove I've ever owned, I still have. And I still love each and every one of them because of the memories associated with each and every one of those gloves. There's a special seasons and games and things like that. And, and maybe playing catch with my friends out in the backyard or hot box or something like that. But my baseball glove was always the one thing I was the most attached to because I just loved to go out and play ball with my friends. We'd go up to the school and play at the field. We had Little League. We had, you know, of course, Pony League and Colt League and all that other right. stuff. But my gloves remain treasured pieces of my childhood that I keep and I love to pull out every now and then and just kind of look at and bring back the memories of all those great times. Yeah, and that makes sense the way you tell that because a lot – I didn't have a group of friends in the neighborhood that played baseball. Um, the movie The Sandlot, great movie. I, I loved it and related to it. I'm not going to say that I didn't have friends like that, but we didn't play baseball. We rode bikes or we did other things. But if you did, and that's what you did every day and especially in the summer – then yeah, that that's going to be nostalgic for you. You're going to want to keep that glove. I think that's cool that you still have them. I never well, heard and that. You bring story. that up, and I've told people because I grew up basically in the mid '60s on uh, playing baseball. My life as a younger guy was a lot like that movie, The Sandlot. We yeah. ride our bikes to the public pool. We play with our certain group of friends. We play ball. Uh, they didn't have little league, but you know there was another neighborhood who we were basically rivals with in one town we lived in. Uh, a lot of that stuff was very, very close to the types of things that we did as kids. We built tree forts out in the woods and all yeah. that other stuff. And it's really special because each one of those gloves is a marking in time in my life. Yeah. One. And that's what's, that's what's so cool about each one of the gloves. So for you, what would be toy number two? Um, sort of similar, but like the Transformers, uh, which was 
Similar, well, again, if you don't know what those are, essentially it was something that would turn into a robot. It was either a building or a car or a plane. And like He-Man, it had its own television show. And like He-Man, they would pump up the next action figure on the show that you wanted. I would rate this behind He-Man because while me and everyone else that played with them at the time was mesmerized at first the characters that you're watching on the show, but then you get this figure and it changes. It's, it's a car and a robot. How amazing is this? I think one of them was a gun Megatron that turned into a robot. The, the reason this ranked a little bit behind was because you had to change them and nobody wanted to read the instructions to learn <laughs> how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what you had is a hybrid character. Yeah, so what you had a lot of the time, and we nobody was really patient enough with with you know the more complicated ones to figure out like uh, how how to do it. So you would get it, you would get real excited, and then you try and play with it, and then you just get bored and move on back to your He-Man dolls, I guess. But like. <laughs> I don't know how, and again, these things were expensive and there were sort of like the cabbage patch toys. They would run out of transformers. The, the toy stores would be swamped. You'd have people camping out. I don't know what that's happened with lately, like the tickle me Elmo's and what, what is it? Beanie baby. I, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not up on the current initial surge of excitement about receiving like a tickle me Elmo. Yeah. How much are you going to play with it? I, I'm right. And I just my, see it. Yeah, but I would get these for Christmas and for my birthday and, and like whenever I would beg them. And, and now I, I'm really worried. Like I hope my, my mother or father did not spend the night in line for the toy store to get me this transformer. And then I got it and then broke it or couldn't figure out how to change it. And then that was it. <laughs> so, well, tickle me Elmo after about a week of that would be bury me in the backyard, Elmo, and cover me up with dirt and never yeah. see me again, Elmo. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Oh, I, I got a toy like that. Uh, yeah, you're going to love the last one. <laughs> the next one on my list was really kind of special because it was something I wanted so badly because my friend had one next door, and we played all the time. And there are people who might be familiar with the tabletop rod hockey games where the players basically go up and down the ice on, in these slots, and you slide these rods back out and forth to move them, and you spin them to shoot the puck and pass it and all that other stuff. Well, it was Christmas 1965, and I wanted one so badly. It was number one on my Christmas list, and I knew Mom had gotten me one. We lived in a house that had a carport, and uh, I wasn't allowed to go on the carport, but she decided to hide my Christmas gift out in the carport, but unfortunately, she did it underneath my bedroom window, so I knew for about two or three weeks that my rod hockey game was sitting out there just waiting for me, and I was just dying to get my hands on it. And the one she bought me was kind of special because at that time, the NHL only had the six original teams. Mm -hmm. And the game she bought me had all six teams. Now, you had only two sets of sticks, and they had these little plastic sticks that you had to slide in and out of the little metal figures, which was challenging. And we actually had to take a knife and kind of shave down the handles a little bit to make sure that they would go in and out of certain players. But it was so cool because uh, I had the Blackhawks, which were my favorite team, being from Chicago. And I had all the other teams and we could put them out there and all my friends would come over and we play. I'd play with my brother, but it was still, and it still is one of the most special gifts I've ever received at Christmas because man, I just wanted that thing so badly. Yeah. Um, 
I guess my next one would be, and these are still around. They were, they've been around long before I was a kid. They were around when you were as a kid and I believe they're still around now. But um, when I was in kindergarten in first and second grade, we like my, the group of friends that I had loved these things, uh, Legos, and we would build just about anything out of them. I mean, we'd spend all day in there building stuff, building a city. We had Lego city and, I, I, I don't know. We had a lot of fun with that. And like, we actually had this whole cast system of, you know, we had a, we had a boss and an, and an assistant and then workers and everybody else. And you kind of worked your way up. We had this little Legos club at this daycare that we all went to. And, you, you know, I just kind of have fond memories of that. Like, I think I had more fun with that building that with those guys, I had Legos at home, but you, you know, the daycare we went to, they had, massive amounts of Legos. You could have built a whole neighborhood out of Legos if you wanted to. And for us, that was great. Well, I think it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like it's not just about the toy, the Legos. Yeah. It's also about the camaraderie of doing all that stuff with your friends. Yeah, it was. And even at that age, what were we, six or seven? I mean, we, we just thought it was cool that like it work on this and build it. And then you, you, at the end of the day, you're just kind of looking at it like, look what we built and we'd be all happy. And then, then, you know, we'd knock it down and build something else. But yeah. Well, my next favorite toy, and I'm not sure this is a toy either, but it was for recreational purposes generally, uh, was my bike. Mm-hmm. And I remember I'd ride my bike everywhere. A bike wasn't just transportation to and from school. It was also your source of adventure. You could go up to the shopping center to buy baseball cards, or you could ride to somebody else's neighborhood to do things over there. Uh, I used to ride around for a while when I got my first big 26-inch bike that uh, my grandfather bought for me for my birthday when I was seven. I thought that was a big deal, but I'd ride around our apartment building, and I could cut the corners so closely that the foot pedal on the inside of the bike cutting that corner I could scrape it on the cement Mm. that's how hard I was cutting those corners and every time I'd scrape it I thought was something cool until I went back inside with holes in my knees and bloody knees and my mom pouring Bactine into those cuts that I had from flipping off my bike but the bike always meant adventure something good was going to happen when you were with your bike going somewhere yeah um, that's a good one. So with that, I was going to save this one for, le- well, okay. It's related to the bike. Um, I was going to make this the finale of it. I'll make it number four. I, I don't think this was a toy. I didn't have it for very long. And the reason it's my favorite is not so much the toy itself, but the story that I got out of it and can still tell for the rest of my life. My grandmother, uh, I, we called her like granny. That's what me and my, all, her, all of her cousins all of my cousins called her. Uh, I never knew her as an adult. I only had her in the context of being my grandmother. And I really, really wish I could have known her as an adult and not just the grandmotherly figure because she had to have had an amazing sense of humor. She gave me <laughs> a siren one year. And this thing was wow. hated your parents. <laughs> yeah. And, this thing, and she, she was not like a stupid naive woman she had six kids she had all kinds of grandkids and the more and more i look back on this she had to have done this strictly for her own amusement which makes me love this even more i mean this is the kind of thing 
I would do. And this thing was loud. It had a police siren, an ambulance, and a fire engine on it. And it would easily – I can't believe this thing even got manufactured. Like, what idiot would, would – because it sounded like a siren. Anybody would have mistaken this for an actual siren. And here I am with it, and I think it's great. I'm seven, eight, whatever it is, and it's like, oh, my God, a siren. And, you know, we're driving home, and I'm, like, running it. <laughs> Well, the greatest part about this, I know exactly what happened is your grandmother knew in advance what was going to happen. Yes. When she started that siren up. It was going to drive your parents absolutely nuts. And she was going to get in her car and drive home, yeah. <laughs> laughing all the way. <laughs> about a week or two later, it disappeared. Oh, who knows what happened to it. But Probably right next to Tickle Me Elmo in the backyard. Yeah. So I didn't like it. The, the more and more I think about that, the more hilarious I thought it was. And I, I've heard stories from my parents and aunts and uncles about my grandmother. And it's just, God, she, you know, she loved football. And you don't pick up on this when you're, when you're as young as I was. Like she, she passed away when I was, I think, in fifth grade or sixth grade. So not even a teenager yet. But God, she must have had a, a tremendous sense of humor. And looking back on it now, she she likes sports. She likes comedies. This is the kind of thing that I look at some of my relatives, and I know I, I could see them doing something like this. I really hope that she included your parents in her will and was very generous <laughs> for what she yeah. did. <laughs> because if I was, say, you know, or, or whatever – I would really have to think hard before I'd make that invitation for Thanksgiving or Christmas to have her come over anymore after that. I mean, you'd have to be extremely patient, but I think that's, that is a cool gift. My, my last one is, and it's really, it was always a cheap toy to get. I always had like plastic army men uh, or plastic cowboy and Indians, cowboys and Indians. And you can go up to the dime store and get them for like two bucks and you hold a whole bag full of these things that you could play with. And what I used to do, especially when the weather was bad, you know, I could play with them outside, yeah. but inside. And my mom, she was extremely creative. She was an artist, but she told me how to make my own little battlefields and things like that. She said, get a bunch of books, pile them up at different heights, and then throw a blanket over the top of it. And then you'd have all these valleys and hills and things like that. You'd have this whole scenario that you could play on in your room or sometimes I'd play in the den at my grandparents' house or whatever. But I mean, I wouldn't be in there for hours playing with those things and never get in any kind of trouble whatsoever. It was just a, a good time. I didn't need anybody else there to play with me because to be honest with you, if I had someone there, it was almost like they were getting in the way because I had my own idea of the scenarios and stories that I wanted to do right there on my little playground. Mm-hmm. And my last one was going to be the siren. So it's not as good, but I loved it. It be as good as the siren. I'm yeah. Sorry. And one of the things, and again, this was, this predated my childhood and I think they're still around, but I liked those matchbox car, matchbox cars. I did too. I, yeah. I must've had a hundred of them. And you know, me and friends would race them across the floor. Like every now and then we'd have these tournaments of, you know, we'd put two on two together and we'd actually build like a 64 team tournament or whatever and got all the way down to the end. But there were a lot of times we'd just be playing with those and we would play with them all day. We would have like a Royal Rumble. We had all kinds of games 
going on or like not a Royal Rumble, a demolition derby. And again, things that I had that got scratched all the hell that I later learned now that if you still had them in mint condition are really, really valuable. And those we things, my God, they were well made. I mean. <laughs> yeah, the uh, Matchbox toys from back in my day, and you, you're younger than I am, so you were yeah. playing with them probably, you know, 15, 20 years after I was. Um, they were all metal. I mean, everything was really well put together on the Matchbox yeah. toys, and we played with them. There's also something called Corgi toys back when I was uh, a kid, and they were like Matchboxes, except they were about, well, I want to say two and a half times the size, so they were a little bit bigger, and they were just as much fun, too. I actually had a man from Uncle Car that when you pushed it, in one coming out one window would be Napoleon Solo, and coming out the other window on the other side was Ilya Kuryak, and they both had little pistols in their hands, and it, it rocked the side to side, depending on which way you know you were pushing it. And one guy would come out, then the other guy would come out. And I love the Man from Uncle; it was one of my favorite TV series as a youngster. And so, yeah, pushing those little cars around the floor with your friends, and not maybe out in the garage or out in the driveway yeah. or whatever, was a blast. Yeah. So, well, we need to uh, close up shop here for today, Drew, but we do want to remind people that if they would like to email us, and even if they wouldn't like to email us, they can still email us and give us their comments or maybe suggestions for shows or whatever. And our email address is halftime240 at gmail.com. Halftime240 at gmail.com. My friend, as always, thanks so much. No problem. Thank you. That's Drew Barnett. I'm Chuck Moraz, and this has been Halftime with Chuck and Drew. Thank you.